Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black, and my co-host, Stephen Gillespie. Yes, we're recording this on a Sunday. It's May 8th. You know what that means. It's not only Mother's Day, by the way. Happy Mother's Day to all the Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, basketball moms. Whenever you're listening to this episode, happy Mother's Day. But it's a Sunday. That means we're doing a big board podcast. And again, recording a big board episode every Sunday to release on Tuesdays all the way up through the 2022 NBA draft. This is, however, the last episode for Stevens board. That's right. We're going to knock out the whole first round, essentially 29 all the way down to number one on Stevens board. We broke up the second round into two episodes really because we wanted to live up to the moniker of draft deeper. We wanted to spend a little bit more time on those guys because not all of those prospects we had really talked about in depth on the podcast. So that's really our whole goal. That's what we wanted to do there, but we've talked ad nauseum about a lot of these guys in the first round. So really this is more of, I want Steven to share why he ranks certain players where he did in the first round. I want him to give his thoughts behind the rankings. I'll jump in and, and we'll have discussions about a few of the players on the board, but this is really Steven's show. And I've kind of wanted him to take over these episodes and I've wanted these to be his episodes because it's important. As I've said previously, I want him to really have his thoughts out there and have his rankings and his board out there. This is, this is draft deeper, but it's not just about me. You will have plenty of time to listen to my board as we go through that over the coming weeks. But this is Steven's time to shine. This is his episode. So without further ado, Steven, you ready to run through your rankings? Big dog. This is it, man. This is this is yeah. the first round. This is important stuff. Yeah, man. I'm excited. And just, you know, real quick, shout out to all the viewers and listeners out there that have been rocking with us from 60 all the way up to 30. You know, it's been fun. And Nathan, like you said, man, like this is draft deeper. We we're Sick. freaks. We're freaks with the the the, you know, unknowns and the the least talked about. So today we're going to squeeze in 30 because, Nathan, I feel like the viewers and listeners have heard us speak a lot about a lot of these guys. Now, there's been some late risers, some late entrance into the NBA draft who we've had to go back and redo homework and things like that. So like you mentioned, man, we're going to go back and talk about all these players. But I feel like since we're going to start, I'm just going to mention number 30. We'll make it a clean first round. I'm just going to mention the guy who I had. Just a clean first round. Like, we're not going to leave it at 29. I just feel gross leaving it at a weird number like that. So, at number 30, Nathan, for the folks that remember, we had Jake LaRavia out of Wake Forest. Kind of multiversal wing who can – I really think his defense has been undervalued. I think that volume on the three-point arc is going to help him out moving forward. I like his playmaking ability positionally. I don't think it's going to be anything to to necessarily write home about, but I think that he's going to be a great connector for whatever teams that lands him. And now at 29, we got the Italian wing prospect, Gabriella Procida out of Fortitudo. And really excited to talk about him, man, because there's a lot of people that are like, he's not a sneaky athlete just because he's white. Like he's actually an explosive athlete outright. He's a great three-point shooter. He's got some funky ball handling ability too, which I don't think is ever going to be like his primary, you know, contributions to a team, but I think it's a great ancillary skill that he can provide defensively. He's got some great potential on that end, but I don't think that everything that we know about him on that side of the ball has been unearthed yet. So I have him at 29, Nathan at 28. 
I want to park here for a little bit because we haven't necessarily had a chance to talk about him. I feel like at length between one, one, one another. And that's Ryan Rollins out of Toledo. There's some guys on the team, man, that really like him a lot. What are your thoughts on him? Ryan Rollins is an interesting prospect. 6'4", 180-pound guard out of Toledo. Fairly young in terms of where he's at um, in the sophomore class. Guy who, unless you're paying attention pretty closely to all the prospects around the country, he's a guy who really could slip through the cracks. But I think enough of analysts like us, for example, have brought him into the fold of the plumber. It was, a, it was hard to ignore not going back and, and watching the film on him at this point in the cycle. And he... His offensive game, Stephen, at the guard position, it's a lot of what you want nowadays yeah. in the NBA. This, this self-shot creator, somebody who operates really well out of pick-and-roll sets, 89th percentile scoring out of pick-and-roll sets as the ball handler, um, has a little bit of a runner, can finish around the basket, very, very, very crafty in the mid-range. He's, he's a guy who I, I praise Johnny Davis for a lot of the same things. He doesn't rely on the three-point shot to carry his scoring totals which by the way, he was almost a 19 points per game scorer this year at Toledo. So very good scoring average, almost 47% from the field. So shoots really well on those two point shots. And that's what, it, that's his bread and butter, right? He wants to operate in that mid range area. He wants to come off the screen and make decisions from there. And he was really good at doing it in college. And another number that I wanted to call out really quick, you know, I love when, certain play types, including passes, when those percentages jump up, yep. when you factor in the passes as well, 93rd percentile in terms of pick and rolls, including passes, 76th percentile when you factor in isolations, including passes. So this is a guy who's very comfortable not only coming off that initial screen up top, but also operating in one-on-one -on -one situations as well. And listen, if, if the three-point shot doesn't come around, I think that's really why his stock is where it is. He was only a 31% three-point shooter in college, so you're going to look at him as like a, a late first-round pick or an early second-round pick, more likely than not, but if the three-point shot comes around, if you're a firm believer yep. that he's going to improve from the perimeter, that's when you start getting up in ranges like some of the no-sealings guys have him in around like a top-20 grade, for example. That's If you're buying that he's going to improve and make leaps and bounds, he's going to become 36, 37% three-point shooter, or even north of that, you start getting in more complete offensive territory to where regardless of where the defense is at, which I don't think any of the defense is bad, he just yep. doesn't stand out on that end of the floor. He's not going to be a one-on-one -on -one stopper, but he'll. I think he's smart enough with how he sees the floor and reads the game to the floor where he'll be fine in like a team defense setting. Um, but really, you're drafting him for his offense anyways, and that's really going to be the separator. But I guess – you're, you're ranking him in that late first round, Steve, which is probably where I'm going to have him as well. I'm assuming that at least right now, you don't really trust the three-point shot to make improvements in like a year one setting, for example. Well, yeah, and I, I was entertaining him as high as 20, which we'll get to some of these names that I had there. But when I look at what I think that he's going to do at the NBA and I look at his height, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he's ever going to be a lead guard on a team. And, and that's OK. Not every guard needs to come into the NBA and Just be able second, to, to run the show. Yep. Yeah, like he can come in and do that. He could be a six man of the year candidate, potentially like at his best. And there's a lot of value to that. So when I look at the defensive limit limitations that I expect him to have, when I look at his size and how they think that that limits him positionally because of where he is as maybe a creator for others. I think that that kind of brings him down. But again, I entertained him as high as 20. And a guy that's arrived late on the scene, the efficiency from deep was another concern that you just mentioned. 
but I'm glad that you brought up Johnny Davis because whenever I turned it over to you and I was hearing you break him down, I was like, huh, this sounds a lot like a guy that we're going to be talking about later in Johnny Davis. So maybe I do need to kind of reevaluate where I have him, but I feel like, again, from anywhere from 20 to 40, like I could be talked into for like with someone who's very convincing in the way that they speak and break down game. I feel like I could be talked a little bit higher or lower on these guys, but just me in my the, own little the Stephen thing about Ball, Johnny Davis, though, the, and I know we're going to talk, we, we might touch on yeah. Johnny Davis a little later, but the, the, the real difference between the two is that Ryan Rollins was doing this in, in like a mid-major type of conference. Johnny Davis was on the ball at much yeah. greater volume in the Big Ten, right? A very high major, prominent conference, arguably the best, best conference in college basketball this past year, at least during the regular season. I know the mm-hmm. ACC would have some qualms about that with where some of the teams that sure. up in the postseason tournament, but certainly one of the top two conferences in, in the country this year, arguably top three over the last few years. So much, much, much tougher competition and much greater volume with a lot more responsibility on his shoulders. That, to me is the main separator between the two. Like I mentioned, the percentile rankings, pick and roll ball handler, offense in terms of scoring, and then pick and rolls, including passes. The percentiles are great. They're important to highlight. But would he be rating out the same way in a conference like the Big Ten? Those are answers that we don't have. Those numbers might be slightly lower in a better conference against better competition night in and night out. So I think that's another important distinction to make as well. Yeah, and I think that the toughness factor, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Johnny Davis later. But again, I bring that up because conversationally all season long, I was making this point about EJ Liddell, another guy that we'll talk about is like, how much better is, you know, Keegan Murray than EJ Liddell at the things that they do? Because they do a lot of, they have a lot of similarities. There's enough differences to where they're different players. But now I'm kind of at that point with Ryan Rollins and and Johnny Davis, like how different are they? I acknowledge that Davis is better, which is why I have these guys where I do, but how far is that chasm? So we'll keep it rolling here. At 27, Peyton Watson. Now, I feel like this is the part of the draft where you kind of have to make a bet, right? Like I was like this last season with Zaire Williams. I had him as a lottery level talent. And I, I see a lot of similarities in terms of the decision making that they made to go play where they played. There's you know, there's a there's a large group of people that say like, well, you have to grade these guys on their decision making as well. And picking where you play is that. So yeah. maybe there's an argument to that. But me, myself, like I wasn't ready to make a life changing decision this young and <laughs> just be told to, you know, hey, go swim in this deep water. I ultimately did. And that's why I work where I work now. But Peyton Watson, I don't think that he made the best decision for him to develop and expose himself to be able to be evaluated as highly as what he was projected to be coming into this season and I just think that there's too much talent left to not take a swing on him in the late in the latter half of the first round I I know I'm not alone in that kind of thought process but for the people who have him lower I get it and I I explained in previous shows that I got to start rewarding productivity this is I feel like this is the one prospect that I'm just like Look, I understand the productivity. Maybe there's another guy coming up in this conversation, too, where I acknowledge the lack thereof, the productivity, but there's just too many tools to work with. And I you can't completely throw out the situation with Peyton Watson, Nathan. No, I agree 100 percent. Yeah. So we'll keep it rolling here. (laughs) Nathan, at 26, I know that everyone at No Ceilings is going to not want me to talk about this guy. 
Ishmael Kamagate. All I have really to add from the last time that I spoke about him was that he 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 beat up on Victor Wembanyama again, who's going to be the number one pick in next season's draft potentially. And like we have to acknowledge the fact that this kid can ball. So that's all there. Anyway, we'll move on. At 25, Marjan Beauchamp for the G League Ignite. Nathan, we talk about him. You love him in transition as a wing if you're kind of moving Tari Eason as a forward. I agree with you there. And then at 24, Kennedy Chandler. Nathan, I want to get your thoughts at the just overall. Is this too high for you for Kennedy Chandler? It's not where it's not where I have him. Um, not to not to give away too many spoilers on your board, but to jump up a few spots. Um, you have Ty Ty Washington at twenty yep. on your board, so that that difference. I'm I'm with you in terms of the difference between the two. I have Ty Ty Washington a few spots above Kennedy Chandler on my personal board as well. I just have both of those guys move down on my board. If that wow. makes sense. Similar similar separation, but I have Washington. Um, a, a little lower on my board than I have Kennedy Chandler, a little lower on my board after that, which everybody listening at home will certainly find out specifically the number <laughs> where I have them on my board a little bit later on in this process. But I, I value them as, as late first round or early second round grade guards. And it's just like a fascinating debate that you mm-hmm. can have. And we were having some of it back and forth in our no ceilings group chat. And we were examining, I, the Corey brought this up. He was talking about how we went back and he watched Scoot Henderson and that's going to be a hot topic for the 2023 mm-hmm. draft is how do you compare Scoot Henderson to somebody like a Victor Wimanyama, for example, and how do you rate these prospects? But just in terms of talking about lead guards, I've brought this up multiple times, but I just, I, I'm so strongly on this island that when you evaluate a prospect like Scoot Henderson, that's closer to the bar that you need to be at in terms of playing lead guard in the NBA. Like there is very, very, very small room for error at this point when you're being a lead guard because of not only the competition at the position with similar size players to a Ty Ty Washington or a Kennedy Chandler, but also the fact that you have these big initiators now, like Doncic, Um, LeBron James been doing it for years. You see Giannis bring the ball up and down the floor. Like the, the quote-unquote lead ball handler position has just evolved in so many different ways, especially over the last five to 10 years, to the point where you really have to be a difference maker to, to grab those reins in the NBA um, for, for an NBA franchise. And I, I don't see Kennedy Chandler or Ty Ty Washington being those caliber of lead ball handlers at the NBA level, but they're rotation guards, right? So really, yeah. it, it's more a question of, how do you value that spot? Like if they are guys who either need to start next to one of those bigger initiators or they're just much better suited being like one of the first guards off the bench, how, where do you value drafting that kind of player? And in the 20s, it's absolutely fair to take somebody like that. If that's Especially if it's a need for your team, I would much rather get a guy like that who you can groom, have them in the fold for four years instead of having to try and go out in a veteran market and, and bring in a free agent guard to be a backup because that's it's not always as easy as people might think it would be. Just like we have that conversation about bigs. Ready to mm-hmm. just go out in the free agent market, find the big that you need to, to be able to bring off the bench and really contribute in a big way for an NBA team. That's it's not always as easy as it is. There's, nope. there's some, sometimes there's a reason why these veterans are available at that point in their careers on the free agent market. So, like if you know that Kennedy Chandler is going to be a long-term backup for you, if you know that Ty Ty Washington can be a long-term backup, maybe play some starters minutes in a specific role, and you're confident about that, you go and get those guys in the 20s. Um, but 
in terms of where you take them in the 20s, that could be negotiated. You're a little bit higher on the both of them than me. That's fine, but we're still talking about them in the same range and with similar separation between the two. And I think we can get so hung up on certain aspects and philosophies that we apply it as like a a mainstay for every draft class. Like, and this is where philosophies differ, where I 100% agree with you, but we also need to evaluate prospects relative to their draft class. Like, are we, are we more comfortable taking the best point guard uh, potentially or, or, you know, kind of traditional guard of, available as opposed to hoping the eighth, ninth, tenth prospect at the three, four, or five in a similar draft range, right? So that's an interesting discussion in of itself. But we'll move forward here to pick number 23, Ushman Zhang. Nathan, I don't know how, many, how much time you've had to reinvest to go back and look at some more of his film in the latter half of the season. Uh, you know, I, I've neglected my season long evaluation of him. I kind of watched, you know, maybe the first month and month or two. I was like, all right, I I had a hard time projecting him getting any better. And then buzz started coming out. I went back and did my due diligence and watched him again and said, OK, like at some point I got to like kill my pride and kill my early evaluations and give the guy a fair shot. And I'm glad that I did. Because I, I went back and watched them. Obviously, there's enough talent there to fall in love with at that size, skill level, Nathan. I just think that kind of similar to Leonard Miller, but I think that this guy's more ready. Like he just got done playing in a pro league and got better as the season went on. Like there's value in that. And again, evaluating his situation, it even it wasn't even the best situation in the NBL that he could have went and gone to. So, and we've talked about that before, but I have him at 23, Nathan. Where are you kind of? Do you kind of like where I have him now? Is this kind of safer to you? Or do you think that I should be looking at potentially moving him up? I'm higher on him. I'm absolutely okay. higher on him. The audience would know anybody who did get to listen to the podcast that I did with our good friend Chuck from Chuck and Darts. Yep. Him and I really wanted to glow about him. And for, for good reason, I've moved him into the lottery conversation on my board. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he's earned that spot. It's really because when you go back and you do the, the deep dive on the second half of the year film with the New Zealand breakers, that is something that I hadn't done it before. I did that podcast with Chuck. So I was kind of like you, I had seen what I wanted to see in, in the first half and I, I wasn't sold on him at all. I didn't even know if he was going to be in this draft to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. And then, and then that might've been a, a bigger question that would have come into play had he not had the second half of the year that he did. But there were at least three to four standout performances that he did have where everything just kind of came together for him, where yep. he was hitting all the deep shots that we wanted him to. He was making plays in the mid-range. He was operating as a ball handler in pick and roll, both scoring those situations and facilitating for others. And 6'10 wings who can do all of those things on offense, and then you evaluate his defense, and nothing stood out to me in terms of he can't do these things on defense or he's not seeing what's happening on defense. I think more of it's just the physical limitations between him having more of that frail build right now. He doesn't have a lot of bulk to him, but at the same time, I look at his frame. I think he's going to fill out in time. And if I expect the body to improve, which comes back to some of the things I didn't like about him on both ends of the floor, be it the physicality aspect on defense, being able to get in front of guys and keep guys in front of him much better versus having somebody always go through him. And then offensively, I really want him to be a more consistent driver and get to the free throw line more to better average out some of those scoring inefficiencies to the point where he can up his point totals in a really good way. And I, I come back to this fact that 
if most of my reservations are based around the body, which I think is going to improve, and he has so many other skills that are valuable at a position type that's so important to have in the NBA nowadays, why am I not valuing this guy in the lottery conversation? So that's the realization that I came to. That's it was kind of a lot of where Chuck was at as well. And he agreed with me that it, it's not that the body needs to improve, like for him mm-hmm. to like not be a good NBA player. Like I, th- I think he is going to be a good NBA player, but when we talk about the lottery, we're, we're in like the star hunting conversation. So I think in that aspect for him to reach more of a higher ceiling than just being a, a good solid wing, I need to see the improvements there, but I'm confident that those are going to happen. And that's why I do have in a lottery conversations. I think this guy has, I, he's got a chance to be a star, not just a good NBA player. So how do you evaluate his game in relation to like a Franz Wagner who probably had one of the more underrated rookie seasons in this this year right like we got a big who can create for himself and others a little bit a guy who projects to be able to stretch the floor and give you a lot of versatility anywhere from you know even if you wanted to run a huge lineup I feel like both of those guys could give you minutes at the two or you can get creative and you have these guys running for potentially even five I guess depending on the lineup I don't necessarily trust them that deep in the rotation but I mean a lot of similar versatility in their in their skill set like do you look at those two relatively the same I think I think I think Usman's a little bit more of a a fluid player off mm-hmm. the bounce. I think he's got better vision and he's a better passer. But in terms of scoring and and how much of that part of his game is better put together right now, I I think Franz would obviously be my answer there. And I actually wrote about Franz for by the time you're listening to this podcast, you would have yep. you would have absolutely read my final rookie ladder for no ceilings that was going is going to be published. Um, it would have been published already on Monday by the time you're listening to this, but I wrote about Franz and Franz is a much more complete player than I would have initially envisioned when I evaluated him. But I think some of that comes back to his body as well. I think he's, he's a more physically mature player than I think we might've given him credit for um, the second year coming out of Michigan. His body's a lot more further along than Usman's. Um, but I think Usman has, better natural shooting ability and then some of the passing things that we factor into i i i think that he has a much higher outcome of him succeeding more with the ball in his hands than than franz does in in my opinion i think he can handle a little bit more but just from a pure scoring aspect i would take franz right now and that's well hopefully we'll see more of that come for uzman as he physically develops yeah and i think for uzman the career path that i would envision for him like if i'm trying to develop him would be similar to that of like a Lamar Odom. I think that, you know, body-wise, skill set-wise, playmaking, things like that, that wouldn't be a bad way to go. But like you said, like Lamar Odom wasn't wasn't a small guy either physically. There's you know, there, he, there there's a Paul George type ceiling for for Usman. I'm not I'm not gonna rule out that outcome. I guarantee that that's a very limited outcome. That's an incredibly high ceiling and a high bar to hit, but you look at some of the things that Paul George has been able to get better at throughout his career. Mm -hmm. I can see a lot of the same developments for Usman, but again, that's going to come back to the fact that Paul George, while similar size players, he had and has a better body. So Mm -hmm. a lot of that physical maturity is going to have to come for Usman as well. But when you took, when you just compare their skill sets and what both of their apexes look like, if Usman does hit his apex ceiling, I mean, that's the type of player we're talking about. And even if there's a chance that that could happen, I think you have to value that in a draft class like this. Yeah. And plus the athleticism that Paul George came into the league with, you know, due to injuries and things like that, that's taken a little bit of a hit. 
But young Paul George was nasty. But we'll move forward here. At 22, Daylon Terry, a prospect who I feel like whenever he started playing in the tournament, that's when his star rose a lot. But then it just kind of plateaued, you know. So I'm interested to see what NBA teams and organizations, front offices and scouts are, are thinking about with him because I think that he's good enough to be a first-round pick, you know, six seven. I have him listed as a perimeter player, a guy who I think can give you minutes, you know, at his best version of himself at the one, two, or the three. You know, he can shoot, he can pass. I really love his defend, the, you know, defensive versatility that he gives you as well. A lot to like about him there. I entertain moving him up as well because of his size and skill set. At 21, speaking of size and skill set, I have Nikola Jovic. Now, this is a prospect that's very divisive within our own No Ceilings Collective and even draft Twitter and executives abroad. You know, there's there's people that have him, have him in their lottery. There's people that don't have him in their first round at all. I'm trying to find that that sweet spot in the middle where it's like, okay, if this guy hits, he's going to be so different and unique that there's really nothing to compare him to. Like, we can do our best to compare him to some other players, but I think Nikola Jovic, that blend of, you know, floor spacing, playmaking ability, will have to make a lot of strides on the defensive side of the ball, but I think yeah. that you can scheme him in there to yeah. where he's more of like a help guy, like kind of sag off, like almost like a safety in football. I think that he could potentially be so versatile that it's worth taking a shot in the first round, but later in the first, you're not going to necessarily be crushed for drafting Nikola Jovic. So at 20, you know, the, your favorite player in this entire draft, Nathan, I had Ty Ty Washington Jr., which I, apparently he's now my new favorite. And I feel like I was lower on him throughout the season, but you did a great job of explaining, you know, why you moved those guys back. And again, hats off to you for, you know, being, being willing to adjust your mindset and draft frame to where you're moving those guys he's, back a little he, bit. Listen, I mean, he's kind of ended up in the position where I was sort of looking at him like it, during the preseason, right? Like mm -hmm. I, me too. I, I had him like 23 on my 1.0. I, I wasn't, I wasn't big on a lot of these point guards. I was, I was very high on Kennedy Chandler to start, and I kind of moved him back. And <laughs> I, I, I will say that even though there's the separation between those two right now. There, there's a chance I could still possibly move, move Kennedy ahead of him. And that would mean that I, I think Ty Ty is going to stay in a similar position to where I have him on my board right now. There's a chance I move Kennedy up because I bring some of that value that you talked about. Would you, would you rather take a guard who I would rate ultimately as the best guard in the class ahead of some of those other guys that are in they're they're, they're lesser on positional boards. I don't know. I might still go back and reevaluate some of that myself over the next few weeks, but Ty Ty has come back, like I said, into much more of a range than I expected him to be in. I had raised him up, but it, it, it really hurts, and it's a weird situation when we really only have, like, three to five games that we can look at Ty Ty and say, okay, that's going to work as, like, a yep. true starting guard in the NBA. He got off to a slow start, then he had that stretch where he had that 17 assist game and some few other standout performances. Then he got hurt. He had to try and come back from the injury. Like That really hurt his stock, in my opinion. Like, how much of – what we project him to be is based off of post-injury Ty Ty Washington. Yeah, and, and I mean, him, again, having to come back and then really not being himself for the yep. tournament either. I mean, not being there to really help his team get past. And, and instead, they, they were on upset alert and they got upset. So that, that really didn't help his stock either. I completely agree. I think he was on an upward trajectory. Had he not gotten hurt and maintained some of that level of play, we would likely be talking about him as a lottery pick and whether that's fair or unfair, we should 
be trying to go back and evaluate the tape and not necessarily focus on just the stock aspect of it. But the fact that we do have all that tape and there's just aren't many standout moments on point where that's the guy, like that's who I want running my team. And that definitely hurts him. And that's a feather in Kennedy Chandler's cap. Again, you, you kind of have the guys where you do, I have the guys where you do, but Kennedy Chandler, like he has a whole season's body of work where sure there's some games that scare me to death. If I'm giving mm-hmm. him the starting point guard job on my NBA team, but he has a more complete body of work and he did lead a team in the sec to an sec tournament championship, something that a freshman point guard having to captain and guys who are much older than him for the most part on the majority of the rest of the collective of the team had to look up to him. Correct. He was their leader. That really stands out to me. And that impressed me a lot. And I specifically tweeted that statement. So that is a feather in Kennedy Chandler's cap. If I would move him ahead of Ty Ty Washington. It's so interesting, like how much internal debate and struggle we're still having, even though there is no more college basketball being played because we're going back and redoing our homework and, you know, how much of a, how much of our in- initial evaluation of these guys were we still hanging on to and how much are we still willing to bet on these guys based off of what we saw them at their absolute best. So it's going to be interesting. But Go that's ahead. also that I was just going to, to kind of put an end to it. Like that's also why I think we're right to have them where we do right now, Correct. on our respective boards to have them outside of the top 20, because I don't think that the, if, if they were truly deserving of being in the lottery conversation, I think they'd be there right now. We wouldn't Correct. be having the back and forth. That answer would be a lot more clear to us. And because it's not that clear at a position where they're not quote unquote standouts, there are just more intriguing bets in my opinion that you can make on the board. That's why that that's just even feeds into more of why I have them right there. Yeah. And I actually had to move. I actually moved those two up, you know, going back and watching them. So I was lower on these guys initially, but going back and watching them, I was able to move them up. So at 19, a guy who I have been championing for a long time, uh, it's just where the, where the order shakes out to me, just because I have him here doesn't mean that I wouldn't consider him one of my guys. Like I still love EJ Liddell. I have him here at 19. I'm so glad that the consensus is like gradually leaned on to, okay, like there's a lot to like about here, his game. Is he, is he the, the tallest guy at his position? No. Is he the most athletic at his position? No, but he plays bigger than what he is. I think his wingspan will help him out with that. I can't wait to see what that final measurement uh, as far as his wingspan is going to be. He is more athletic than he appears. He looks kind of boxy on the court, but he has great pop and he actually has a good second jump as well, which if you're going to be undersized, you have to have a quick second bounce, which I think that he possesses. His weak side rim protection is awesome. He stretches the floor. His jump shot isn't the prettiest, but I don't even know if you necessarily need to change it because it wasn't something that was affecting him when, when defenses were closing him out. So maybe minor adjustments, but I still trust him there. And again, a, 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 an underrated lob threat on the season as well. And now at 18, this is the second guy that I'm willing to throw out everything that we saw for the season and still hold on to that preseason hope and put situation into perspective, which I know a lot of us at No Ceilings have done. Patrick Baldwin Jr. at 18. Nathan, there was a time in the season where I said, I don't care how bad he's played. I can't move him outside my lottery. 
like you have had to address my draft frame mindset. There's been more names added later on into the season since I made that statement. Yeah, but I think I think a lot of other guys have really pushed themselves ahead because mm-hmm. of what they've done. I don't I don't think this is necessarily an indictment on Patrick Baldwin Jr. just because of his own self, why you moved him down Correct. a little bit. And I'm kind of I'm kind of in the same boat. Like his we we shouldn't take fully poor seasons and completely throw them out in every single scenario. But his situation was just so unique in my opinion. That's that, a like, nice way to say it. Yes. I, I, I am going to, I am going to throw a lot of it out to, to, to put it nicely. You, you and I believe in the player that, that we saw before the season. Yeah. And I mean, his stroke looks just too clean for it to not be a, a weapon. Yeah. He's not a number one option. Clearly he, that, that point has been yep, made. Absolutely. But there's still a nice player there. And, you know, at 18, I still think that he gives you enough of a return to where you could potentially be like, how did this guy fall all the way to 18 with his combination of shooting ability, you know, tertiary, you know, fourth playmaker on your team, obviously with the size and the shooting as well. So a lot to like about him there at 17, a guy who throughout the season, I had been consistently lower on, but the tournament really sold me on his value Mark Williams from Duke out of 17. I just think that once you get past Chet, you can. there are people that make the argument for Williams over Duran. I, I'm not in that camp. But as soon as you pass those guys, it, to me, there's like a whole other level of separation between Williams and then the collection of Coloco, Kamigate, and Kessler. Yep. yep. So I have him there at 17. At 16, another player that I like a lot at Oshai Baji. I just I think that he's very limited. You have him outside the lottery, Steven. I didn't I know him. that was gonna happen. I mean, two spots outside the lottery. I could be I could be talked into potentially moving a couple of these guys that I have ahead of him down and slotting him in there. I just think that positionally, he's only gonna be a gunner at the two. Like in it's not the age, it's not him being a senior, but positionally speaking, I think he's going to be very limited in what what spot he plays like similar to that of like a Malik Beasley for the Minnesota Timberwolves, right? Like there's, there's guys that I'm willing to take a chance who could give you more positional versatility ahead, or in the case of another player, like be top half of the entire league at his position, whenever he hits his absolute ceiling. Can, can, can we just like stop and just mention one really quick thing? That's more of a general point than necessarily a conversation about in general, just because you have a player outside of your lottery does not mean that if he ends up producing quote unquote more value than that spot that he's being drafted at outside the lottery. That doesn't mean that you had a quote unquote miss on that prospect. You've been high on him all year. You have acknowledged his strengths and what he could be in the NBA all year. And I think you still think he's going to be a good NBA player. If there is a chance, however, that you can draft a player ahead of him who has more upside and could potentially be in that quote unquote star hunting conversation or close enough to it. I think you still make that bet. That doesn't mean that you don't think a is going to be a good NBA player. I think, I think that conversation really needs to be put to rest a little bit, just because I have a player outside my lottery. doesn't mean yeah. I think it's impossible that they could return lottery value. I think you and I have talked all year, even when some people want to say that I've been a little lower on a I still have him inside the top 20. I don't think he's going to be a bad NBA player. There's just more intriguing bets I would rather make in the lottery. We're supposed to be searching for higher end, more 
upper echelon type star level talent potentially. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. Like the fact that I have him in my top 20 and really that whole grouping that I'm going to go through when I do go through my boards, like top yep. 23, 24 ish guys that I feel really good about. Like if I have somebody in there, that means that I would really love to have this person on my team or in my organization. It's not a slight just because I'm attached to the number to a person. So I think that that also kind of helps better explain where, where you have them and why you might not have them in the lottery as well. Yeah. This is the, the safe versus swing philosophy, right? Like the pit, like teams at the 16 spot don't necessarily, historically speaking, like this draft is going to be unique because there are going to be teams that are really good, have higher draft picks than what we're normally accustomed to seeing to where they can make a safe bet and it not be like, Oh my gosh, how did they pass on this player? But at towards the end of the season, we'll mention some of these names that have kind of had a hard, uh, you know, had a hot streak towards the latter end of the season that have just played their way up. Like you mentioned, it's not an indictment against Osha. I still love him. I still think that he's going to be a, like you a mentioned, good NBA, a good, NBA, yep. good NBA player. So we'll move on from there. Jeremy Suhan at number 15 out, just right out, like squeaked outside the lottery. Don't necessarily love it. But again, I, it's just hard for me to talk myself into putting him above some of these other players. But again, I acknowledge the fact that this guy could give you a lot of versatility defensively covering the three, four, or the five, depending on the matchup. I understand that he kind of gives you this funky little Boris Diaw or Kyle Anderson effect at the, at the four where he can have plays run through him. He can make good reads. You know, not the best athlete, but I think better than what you would initially anticipate. And, you know, rebounding, playmaking, it's just really, is the shot going to be all there for him? And if not, then I think a, a toolsy switchable four, I feel comfortable taking like immediately outside the lottery. But again, there's a couple players that I have higher than him that I could be talked down on. But the absolute, like the multiverse of madness, that movie just dropped, you know, depending on which multiverse I'm living in. I might want to take a, a higher risk on some of these guys, Nathan. So at 14, a guy I've been championing all season oh, long. Boy. And and if the Oshai Baji ranking wasn't proof of like just because I have them here doesn't mean that I don't absolutely adore them. This one should speak to that point. Tari Eason is a guy who I love, who I had top 10 for the majority of the season. This is me acknowledging that like there's higher end outcomes of some of these other guys that are better but I absolutely love Tari Eason. Like I could be talked up to as high as 10 with him. I love the defensive versatility. The shooting has improved all season long. Nathan, you know, I'm a big fan of in season adjustment and improvement. I just think that he gives you way too much, uh, you know, to not be taken outside of the lottery and still have potential like second, third best player on your team. If everything hits right. So I'm just a big believer in him. So I, I cannot wait to come back and revisit the Tari Eason conversation like three years down the road. Yeah. I, there, there's going to be some lessons to be learned on both sides um, with his evaluation and, and what it means in, in the NBA overall. So I cannot wait to come back to him. There's videos of him, Nathan, hitting left-handed shots. I don't know if you saw them circulating. I saw them and I was willing to – I was tempted to put him in my top seven. But, you know, all, all, joke, all jokes aside – I do I do understand the weaknesses in his game. I do acknowledge them. I just from what we've seen in his limited collegiate career, I don't bet against worth that work ethic more times than not. 
And to see him go from Cincinnati, be the best player on that team when it wasn't asked or anticipated of him, to going to LSU, and from what we've seen retrospectively, like maybe that situation was a lot worse than what we initially thought when we were watching the games happen. It's just hard for me, man, just to be like, this guy has not gonna has not been outworked yet. And, 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 and by the way, all the flack that, that I want to get about not having him as like a top 10 prospect in this draft. He's <laughs> again, another guy. He's, he's inside my top 20. And he, he, for all the questions I've had about him, he's mm-hmm. been inside my top 20, mo- mainly really at the 16 spot for quite a long time on my board at this point. Like we're talking like months at that yep. spot on my board. So for all the questions I do have about him, I don't think the guy's going to suck in the NBA. That, that's not <laughs> where I'm at on Tar Houston. I just, there are people that have him inside the top 10 that think he's going to be like a, a potential star. And like that, like, yeah, like a Jimmy Butler type. Yeah. I just, I, I, I don't, I don't see that Steven. I'm sorry. If, if he becomes that great, it's going to be fantastic. Yep. I'm going to revisit that evaluation. I'm going to examine why I was wrong and what I can do better as a scout. And I'm going to be happy for the guy. I just, I just don't see it. And so that's kind of where I, but, but I still think he can be a good NBA player. Like I don't, despite all the questions I have. Yeah. I mean, is it crazy to think that this guy could be like a, a Steven Jackson type player in the NBA where he's not necessarily like the best player on your team? I compared, start- him, I compared him months ago to James Johnson. And yeah. the reason why I made that comparison was they, they have similar body types I think Tari's probably a better run and jump athlete than James Johnson was. James Johnson was also a really good athlete, yep. um, especially when he was younger coming into the league, both very productive on the boards, both very productive defensive playmakers going all the way back to college. When I ran through their numbers with Chuck, their numbers were eerily similar in yep. many different categories going back. And, and James Johnson, you might not think that's a sexy name, but that's also a guy who's held on to starting roles earlier in his career in the NBA and then has held on as a rotation player for quite a long time in yeah. the league. So like he was drafted at 16. So that's the similar range I see for Tari. So like, I do have that belief in him. That's a quality NBA player for like a decade plus in the NBA. So I don't, I don't think just cause I have those beliefs in him, like I'm low on him. Like that would be a really good outcome. If an NBA team could get that with yep. from like the 14th all the way to the 20th pick, I think they're happy with that. Yeah, and I mean, it's what the year 2022 and James Johnson has just reached the point in his career where teams are like, do we want to sign this guy or not? Like just now in the year 2020 and he was drafted, you know, forever ago. So we'll move on here. Uh, Nathan, there is an argument to be made. I mentioned, you know, Patrick Baldwin Jr. I mentioned Peyton Watson. There could be some pundits out there to say, well, hey, you said you were done, but you're mentioning Jaden Hardy here at 13, but you said that you're willing to throw out the season. Well, to me, from what I'm seeing with Jaden Hardy is I've seen a guy who not coming out of like a preparatory Academy, like legitimately coming out of high school, you know, our, our friend Tyler Rucker has mentioned this several times, even most recently on the no ceilings podcast where this guy wasn't like rolling around and, you know, like top flight, you know, prepper, you know, preparatory academies. He's coming out of high school, completely bypassing Academy, completely bypassing college, He's playing on a bigger floor with bigger, tougher, stronger athletes, professional players in in the G League. He's doesn't doesn't have him. the same FIBA experience as even like a nope. Patrick Baldwin, like none of that. Nope. He's just rolling straight out of high school and being asked to lead a team in the G League, which 10 years ago you might would say, yeah, that's no big deal. But now you're asked to lead a G League team, which top draft picks are getting a lot of burn in the G League and having a hard time making 
NBA rotations because of how deep and how valuable the G League yeah. has become. So asking him to make that leap and then knocking him at the beginning of the season for looking like he just came out of high school and completely ignoring like the progressions and the strides that he's made in every other aspect of his game, except for maybe the defense. But Nathan, again, coming fresh out of high school, defending pro athletes, that's a tall order for almost it. Like even the best of the best who have come out of high school, like maybe sans Kevin Garnett had a hard time defending in their initial season against pro athletes. Like, this guy is going to get better. He's not going to get worse as a defender. Well, so the, the thing is, like, you're, you're not even beating around the bush to say that, like, he came out of the gates and had a very poor start for it. Yeah. Like, he did have a poor start. Even heading into the Vegas Showcase games, like, they were, they were, there was film that we have in front of us where I'm like, can this guy even dribble? Like, this guy can't even, like, dribble the basketball properly. He's, yeah. he's turning it over nonstop. Like, this guy took his lumps, but – at the same time, once once you get past essentially the Vegas showcase part of the film, so really like their quote-unquote regular season leading into that showcase, once you get into January and you see like a lot of the exhibition games, essentially everything they played from like January all the way through like the beginning of March, you saw a lot of improvements in his game on multiple fronts. So like to say that this guy just had a poor season in Ignite, if anybody is saying that out there, then they clearly haven't watched enough of a sample size of the tape. Because if you go back and watch a lot of that second half stuff, similar to what I talked about with Usman, mm-hmm. this guy did make really good improvements to his game. Do I still have questions? Do I still think he's as good of a ball handler as what he probably needs to be to be an upper two player in this draft class? Like, no, I still have those same questions, but he came alive as a shooter, came alive much more as like a pick and roll scorer and as a scorer overall, getting downhill, making big shots and big games, having big scoring outputs and and performances in some of these games as well. So like there were a lot of questions that were answered for me. And I, I, for the, I can't remember the social account that I saw was like a (laughs) week ago. We we were talking about a social account and like had put out a big board and she had like Jane Hardy as part of her board and she was, she made a really good comparison in the comment section that she used the name Gary Trent Jr. And mm. I was like, damn, that is a good comparison. I have not heard anybody. I know Buddy Heald's been a popular name for Jane Hardy. Yep. I had not heard the Gary Trent Jr. name. You know what? That makes a lot of sense to have Jane Hardy in like that 13 to like 16, 18 range, because even though Gary Trent Jr. wasn't drafted in that range, that's the type of grade that I had on Gary Trent Jr. Going back and doing that draft, I had him as like a late lottery pick because I was I was a lot more comfortable in the fact that, yeah, some of the shooting he struggled with at Duke, some of the percentages weren't great, but you go back and watch the high school film, the dude was complete three-level scorer. Yep. I mean a complete three-level scorer. And I'm confident that while Jane Hardy might have trouble creating some of those same shots at the NBA level, if he's coming off actions, if he's working off screens, off handoffs, and, and doing a lot of the secondary career type stuff that you and I have talked about with other people in this space this year, that's the type of player I think he could become. And if you're going to tell me he can bring back like Gary Trent Jr. type of value, like not knocking anybody who has the top 20 grade on him, and I'm going to have a top 20 grade on him as well. So I don't, I don't, knock where you have and I really don't think people should if they can look through that lens and they see some similarities yeah I mean I never really consider the Gary Trent Jr. comparison either I think that the size would be like the first thing that I would initially talk about when I make that comp but if you he's, look a, he's game, a little like, he's a little bigger but Jane Hardy yeah. also has length to him though so it's not like and he bulked up like dude is yes. strong 
Like yes. he's not a little guard. He's not a little little guard. He's a and big that also guard. that helped Gary Trent Jr. as well. He had the body coming into Duke as well. Yep, very strong. And you know, we could we don't want to make this a Jaden Hardy podcast. We've had plenty of those on the No Ceilings team. But again, I, there's a lot of us that believe in him. And as proud as some of the No Ceiling team might be that I have him at 13, I feel like the same amount of people are probably going to come for my head for where I have this net next prospect, Nathan. But I feel like I have a valid case. And number 12, Keegan Murray out of Iowa. I have tried to get there. I have tried to get to the top five, to the top seven, to the top 10 with Keegan Murray. I've tried to get there, Nathan. It's not that I'm watching a different player. It's not that I'm I, – I went on my 1.0 big board just, again, for in preparations for my next piece. Adam 28 on my 1.0 like when he wasn't a first round prospect and I feel like I've loved him all season long. I just feel like the rationale that we're getting Nathan is outside of the top three now, potentially top five with, you know, uh, with Ivy and with Shane and Sharple, which we'll talk about. There's the, there's the argument that we'll just take the safe bet, take the safe swing with him at the four man spot, which I, I can understand, but my philosophy is, if I'm drafting within the top 10 and there is not a chance that this guy is going to be like at his ultimate high in outcome, that this guy isn't going to be like the third best player on my team. I can't get there with Keegan Murray. I like him as my fourth and as my fifth, but top three, Nathan, like at the four man spot. Can't, like how many teams are we willing to say that at the, at this position that Keegan Murray plays, that they are the top three or four or the top three on their team. And it's an NBA championship level team. Like that's where I'm at with him, but it doesn't mean that I don't think that he's not a valuable player, that he's not been productive all season long against all different types of level of competition. I value the the ball handling. I value the three point shooting, the rebounding, the defense, what have you. It's just that at the position that he plays, I don't know how I, I will say, I know that he's going to get better as a pro. But at his ultimate high-end outcome compared to some of these other guys, I just feel like I have to put him here. And it hurts because I want to be on the I want to be on everybody's team. I want to be like this guy that's like, yeah, I, I look at him the same way. This is just I could be talked up to 10 with him. But right now I just feel more comfortable at 12. I got I got nothing else sad about Mr. Murray. I've, I've talked about Mr. Murray in depth and it's going to be, he's going to be just like Tari Eason is one of these guys where I want to come back and revisit him. It's going to be interesting for you to come back and then revisit Keegan Murray as well. Yep. And, and that's just where I'm at with him. But again, completely acknowledge how great of a college player that he's been all season long, which is why I have him, you know, as a lottery level talent. And then right above him, I have Jalen Duran. The reason I have Jalen Duran above Keegan Murray is I believe that Jalen Duran has the ultimate high end outcome to where he'll be top half at his position compare comparatively to Keegan Murray you know I, I like the playmaking that he gives you at that position as well the rebounding the defense he showed a little bit of funk in the mid-range so maybe there's enough to build on there but I just I like him as a lob threat a screen setter which I think is kind of under discussed when we're talking about how good these players are going to be coming in the physical level that this guy already plays at is NBA ready his body is going to hold up well I believe and I'm a really big fan of his switching ability. Like when I went back and did my second half of the season evaluation of him, when he got switched on the, onto the perimeter, I started seeing like why people were giving him Bam Adebayo comparisons. I yeah. don't know if he's going to be that great, 
But seeing him be able to switch on guards and hold his own, I was like, okay, I see it. Because I've been of the mindsets where he's like more of a DeMarcus Cousins. But watching him switch out on the perimeter on the second half of the season, I was like, okay, I see it. I get it. I get it. So that's why I have have him at 11. And then at 10, Nathan, A.J. Griffin, a prospect who I had on my 1.0 when I went and looked back, I had him 12. And that's where my initial, you know, evaluation of him was but throughout the season we saw him get vaulted all the way up into like a lot of people's top fives and there's a lot of people that still like him there but going back and watching him defensively going back and watching him you know play making things like that I have concerns I'm curious to see like what are your thoughts on AJ Griffin at this point of the year his his draft case really scares the shit out of me man it it, it really (laughs) does for for multiple reasons um He's he might be a surprise follower for for me on draft night. If we're gonna take one of these guys in our projected lotteries and say who do you think has a good chance to fall outside the lottery, I think that answer is AJ Griffin, which is why I'm when I, I release the board. I'm probably gonna have him outside of my lottery. That might very mm-hmm. well be my hot take to some people, but you mentioned some of the concerns with his game, but also just the the physical concerns as well. Like these are. They're Didn't going even to get be, into the medical stuff and, and why I have them at 10. Yeah. There, there are going to be some legitimate medical red flags. And for, for a lot of reasons that I, I wanted to keep Jared Butler where I had him last year, like there, there are going to be reasons why these guys ultimately just fall on, on NBA teams boards. And I, I wanted to have hope in Jared Butler. And I think I, I for the most part, I really still do, but with AJ yeah, Griffin, too. I'm I'm not I'm not as confident because his injuries have impacted his athleticism, and that's a conversation that you and I have had. It's a conversation I've had with multiple people outside of the space. There has been significant impact, and those are the reasons why I think the red flags are scarier to me than just like a health condition that can pop up and and possibly develop later on in a player's career. Like there are red flags right now, and the fact that they've impacted his game that we have questions about how it's affecting his jump shot with that really wide base, how it's affecting him yep. on the defensive end, how he can't get up and be that same guy that a lot of people were able to evaluate. We saw in high school, it's really concerning. And I get the jump shooting. I, I think the jump shooting will ultimately be fine. Me but too. if, if all he ends up being Steven is a three and D player who doesn't give you the D that's that's a scary proposition in the lottery, especially with the red flags when there are other players, in my opinion, who I, I think I'd much rather may make a bet on. So that's I, I I don't like to be down on somebody in AJ Griffin who for all for all accounts, I've heard nothing but good things. I've seen nothing but Same. good things from him. I think he's a really good person. If I'm a team drafting the lottery, I'm scared to death, man. Yeah, I mean, it it really just depends on the medicals that come back. And I think Nathan there, there might be people who argue due to the severity of his injuries, like we weren't even expecting to see him this year. Like there was legitimate talks at the beginning of the year where are we going to even see this guy play basketball? And typically speaking with these lower body injuries, it takes like two years for the athleticism to start coming back into form in their game. So he might outplay where he gets drafted simply because of the timing of the injury. And when he declares for the draft. Well, that's, that's the thing on, on one end, he's 18 right? That's awesome. He's going to be 18 yep. on draft day. The, the other end though is he's 18 and he's already starting to lose some things because it's not just that he had the injuries and he could recover and he's fine. It's that he's had the injuries and we know that 
they're effective and he had them he's he's these are lasting effects I mean training camp and really going back like two years in high school like these are having lasting effects on him and if he has another one of those injuries in his lower body if he runs any kind of like foot problems or knee problems like can you imagine what that would do to the rest of his career and then you got to look at this guy like four years down the road and be like am I going to give you like a highly touted extension to what a lottery pick generally is asking for and likely deserves in a lot of different cases. Like, am I going to give you that amount of money? Like it's, it's just, it's just a really scary place to be in Steven. And again, we, we wish nothing but the best Absolutely. These prospects. I would, I want to root for AJ Griffin. I would love to meet AJ Griffin one day. Cause I think he's a really good dude, but if I'm a team in this position, man, like it's, 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 as I've said, I'm, 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 scared. I'm absolutely scared to death. And if I'm wrong and, and those circumstances don't come back to bite him and he's a terrific player, like I'm happy to be wrong about it, but you, yep. you gotta be a really special executive with a lot of confidence to be able to make that bet in the lottery. I, I don't know if I'd be that executive, Steven. I think I might rather just go elsewhere. And that that's really more or less why my ranking is going to reflect. It's not, that his pure talent doesn't suggest he could be like a top five or six player. Like I said, he could be in that conversation at the very beginning of the year. Yep. It's that a lot of this stuff is now that we have the tape to see it. A lot of this stuff has really come back to bite him and it scares me. Yeah. And I, I think that how many teams are going to look at the case of Michael Porter jr. When he came in, you know, he was the number one prospect in his draft class. You can argue whether or not that that class was, you know, weaker stronger or or very similar a much but more it, supremely talented player by the way like michael porter jr was the number one pick before a lot of the back injuries started to happen and then you look at aj griffin and what's considered to be a quote-unquote weak draft class wasn't like he was i think the highest i saw people rank him was like third you know and the, a lot of the same things with injuries, but what we're seeing with Michael Porter Jr., like there was concerns that we might not get to see him play again. Like, thankfully, you know, his road to recovery has been a lot better. Yes. But you can't, you can't say that the concerns weren't valid because where Denver took them or took them outside the lottery, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy fell this far. But watching him walk on the, like there were videos of him walking on the stage and people dissecting him in a, in a suit walking up to, shake shake the commissioner's hand and that was being broke down so it'll be interesting to see with the extension that he received how talented he was the way that his career has gone now and seeing where he was ultimately drafted like what happens with AJ Griffin so we'll move forward now number nine Malachi Branham one of these late risers who did help make it easier to push AJ Griffin a little bit further down the line just watching what he did at his age with the level of expectation on him with the fact that there's another first round talent on his team that you could question some nights, like whose team ultimately was it like later in the year where EJ Liddell was getting a lot of recognition preseason all season long. Malachi Branham arrived kind of later onto the scene, but he started making himself be respected and a very mature game doesn't ever seem to be sped up. And I think that that translates that, you know, whether he's like the second, third, maybe potentially even first option if everything goes right. There's a lot to like about that offensively, which I do value, right? So that's why like guys like Keegan Murray are a little bit further down the board because Malachi Branham coming on the scene as a perimeter player and a guard and initiator for himself and others, to me, that could be considered a little bit more valuable, right? So I have him now all the way up at ninth. Nathan, I wanted to just quick hit on him. I know that we talked about him with Matt Penny. 
How are you feeling about him potentially being a top 10 talent? I, I have him in the top 10 and he's, he's a guy in a very similar range as you have him right now for me. I mean, we, we have talked about him at length. I talked about him at mm-hmm. length on multiple podcasts. I've done some guest appearances, especially for, um, for some Knicks podcasts. And I've talked about how Brandon would be a really good fit for them and like that late lottery range. And I think he'd be a good fit for almost any team that will look to draft him. And that's part of the appeal and having a player with a top 10 greatest. Can he be a, univer- a universal fit or seemingly universal fit on a lot of different NBA teams? And things that NBA teams value are consistency and shooting versatility. And he brings both of those things with some playmaking upside. I, it's, it's hard to find players who are deserving of higher grades that many players are reserving higher grades in this draft class than Brandon at this point. He's one of the most efficient guards that, that I've ever evaluated. And just that consistency, that trust factor that I know that I'm going to get this from this player night in and night out. And if teams make mistakes and they don't game plan around him or they don't factor him into a game plan, he's liable to burn them for 20 to 30 points on, on any given night. That that's important to me. I value that. And I think NBA teams, would love to have that kind of weapon in their back pockets to be able to deploy on any given night. Yeah. And we're in that range where I think players six through nine, I could, I love them all equally. It's it's, it's really, yep. it's same tier ranking them was like very nerve wracking for me. Like for people who don't believe me when I got through players six through nine, I'm just like, this is an almost impossible decision because a lot of these guys even have like the same role on a team at the best version of themselves. So like, which one do you like better? Right. So um, we, we already talked, we hinted about Jonathan Davis earlier. I have him here at eight. I could be talked all the way up to six, potentially even five, you know, over a, a certain someone that we'll talk about later, but I just, I love Jonathan Davis so much. I feel like, I'm even underrating how much I love him with where I have him on this board. It's just really hard, man. And you, in you pushing him down, I think is more because you like the two guys ahead of him. And that's just, you, you have very personal feelings about those two guys more so than like, yeah. I don't think Johnny Davis deserves potentially to be ranked higher. And that's that that's okay. You would rather take swings on, on other guys, but you still view him as a, as a top 10 guy. So it's, yeah. it's okay in my book. Absolutely. So getting into those dudes that I have personal feelings for number seven, Benedict Matherin, Talked about him all season long, even on the Draft Deeper podcast. Man like crush. Know, Man crush for Benedict Mather. I just think that people just he, – he's a victim of the time zone that he plays in, and I think that people were just, like, held on to, like, the same narrative way too long throughout the season and it didn't watch enough of his games. And then whenever – now I'm starting to hear people say the same things that I was saying earlier in the year about, like, oh, yeah, the playmaking came on, you know, at the second half of the season. Like, well, yeah, like you just had to have watched it when it happened. But, you know, as a as a talent evaluator, I understand that certain players take certain priorities depending on where you have guys ranked. So I'm willing to forgive and forget um, early in the season on my 1.0. I had him 22nd overall. So if that doesn't tell you anything to how much this guy has improved all throughout the season, I don't know what else does. At number six, Nathan, the uh, the Thunder from Doubt Under, Dyson Daniels playing for the G League Ignite. I'm curious as to how much of a, a hit Hardy took because of how fast Dyson Daniels rose later on in the year. Like the fact that Hardy was projected to be the best guy on this team, and in my opinion, didn't. But that doesn't mean that he's not a good player. Like I wonder how that specific relationship and grouping 
kind of affected his stock. Uh, maybe it kind of over impacted his stock. So I have Dyson Daniels here at six. I really love the fact that depending on the team that he goes to, that he won't be asked to be in a, a primary creator. But a lot of these teams in this range, if they take him, he won't be asked to be. But at the spot in terms of like ranking within the structure of a team, the fact that he can handle the ball and playmake, I think is a huge plus. Defensively, there's not a lot of bad things that you can say about him. The three-point shooting improved throughout the year. He's young. He's tall. You know, that length of, uh, you know, that intersection of length and playmaking and, and uh, understanding of the game, it's really hard to knock. So that's why I have him here at six. Nathan, at number five, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it happened. Jaden Ivey fell to number five. And again, it's not an indictment against him. I had him all the way. I think the highest I had him all season long, I think I had the balls to move him up to number two at one point, if I'm not mistaken. But it's just when we're in this range of one through five now, it used to be a three-man race. To me, it's now become a, a four, potentially five-man race. Jay Nivey, the, the project that he's going to have to be to be the best version of himself, I think impacts his draft stock, right? Like the best version of himself, and you're in my opinion, is as a lead guard. There's people that don't think that he has to do that. I think that that's what I would invest my time and resource and management into is turning this guy into a lead guard. I, I think him at number five, if, if the draft order plays out to kind of where it is looking at right now, right? We have the Indiana Pacers with that number five pick mm-hmm. and he fell number five to that team. I think that might be the best situation for him to be perfectly honest is that, yeah, he would have more opportunities to kind of be a lead guard and handle the ball along with Tyrese Halliburton. They could split reps and then they could split reps individually with different units and different mismatches of players. Like I think that'd be a really, really good outcome for him and playing next to Tyrese Halliburton. He also wouldn't have yeah. to make every single decision himself. He could kind of play in, in an off guard role, but not, not an off guard role in the, in the sense of what he played at Purdue where everything was funneled through the bigs and he had to rely on the post kind of being inside and then back out. Um, they could play a much more your turn, my turn centric style. And I just think being in that environment around those types of players that Indiana has, I think that'd be a really, really good outcome for him. So maybe this is one of those, if he falls on draft night, but he goes to a better situation, kind of how I've seen it play out with some of the other, you know, rookies that we talked about from last year's draft class, for example, I think that everybody kind of went to the right spot for them. I, I think that could be a really good outcome. If he might fall a little bit, and that might be the team that he goes to. Yeah. And I think if he goes to the Pacers too, even if he gets a lot of time with the second unit, even a guy like Chris Duarte, who might be, who would probably also help him as a ball handler, um, like even a secondary tertiary, like a guy who can help take pressure off of him, depending on the unit. Malcolm like Brogdon, yep. Malcolm Brogdon, another one. If he doesn't get traded, I think this is the fourth, you know, offseason in a row where those rumors have been in existence. So, <laughs> you know, they, they have ball handlers to help bring him along slowly. Yep. But again, ultimately, like the best version of him is as a and as an electric. And, and, and they're, they're not just experienced ball handlers; they're also good, smart playmakers yeah. as well like Malcolm Brogdon really smart playmaker with the ball in his hands Tyrese Halliburton we talked about how smart of a connector player he is like the, these are guys Chris Duarte is he was a rookie but he had ex- much more playing experience coming into his rookie season than some of the other players he's an older rookie like 24 years old they're, with they're, lead guard experience in college with, exactly he he carried a, a big brunt of that Oregon offense so like 
there are good guys in place where Jay Nivey could learn from to make better decisions with the ball in his hands. If that's the area of development that he needs to undertake the most is not only figuring out the mid-range game for himself and how to better develop in that area, but also just making decisions out of the pick and roll or in certain play types, like he would have some pretty good people to work with, along with Rick Carlisle as the coach, who he's worked with plenty of smart point guards in, in the past and could really help bring the best out of Ivy as a, as a ball handler as well. And hit guards who have not necessarily the best defensive abilities and put them in yes. advantageous positions yep. as well, which is another conversation for another day. I don't think that Ivy is going to be as bad on the defensive side of the ball as what he was perceived to be in college. But again, story for another day. At number four, making his debut within my top five, Nathan, Shaden Sharp. I'm a believer, dude. I went, I read your article. Great story, by the way. If you want to go and read that on NoSailingsNBA.com, you know, listening to a whole bunch of people who I consider to be smarter than me, going back and watching his Dream City film. Shout out to the Dream City community, by the way, who I feel like, you know, the No Ceilings Collective has struck up, you know, friendly, you know, um, dialogue between them. And going and watching this guy on Instat, again, shout out to Instat, partners of the No Ceilings Collective as well. Going back and watching his Dream City film, it's, I don't know why I didn't value the athleticism that I saw in the film early in the year. I didn't think it was that impressive, but going back and watching it again, it was like, okay, the step back, the footwork, the ball handling, the, the initial lift that he has, even though his first step isn't necessarily the most burst yet his position, or even, you know, even maybe even in this class is still good enough. And the follow on steps are, are, are really good to help kind of make up for that as well. So I, I like the, the three level scoring that this guy is projected to have, defensively he's a young basketball player Nathan we say it so we're blue in the face like these guys are going to get better defensively it's hard for them to get worse like how many guys in high school basketball who are the best player are also like locked down nasty defenders like that comes with time and coaching like that's what you get whenever you do go to college and actually play which we didn't get to see from Shane and Sharp so we're going to get to see him get NBA level coaching on the defensive side of the ball the first time outside of high school, that's going to be the interesting develop, in my opinion, Nathan. I mean, the words, my, my words on Shaden Sharp, as I kind of put in my piece that you referenced on NoSealingsNBA.com, or that he has a lot of the stark qualities that you're looking for from a player who plays the position that he does. But he's at best throughout his high school career was kind of like an off-ball player who if he's going to reach his ultimate ceiling he's going to have to be an on-ball option and he's going to have to develop as that on-ball option like what we watched with Jalen Green the G League night last year how we're watching Jalen Green this year with the Houston Rockets he's he's made a lot of strides yeah as the year went on but it's going to take Shane Sharp the same amount of time like as a pick and roll scorer, all he wants to do is kind of just sit behind a screener and chuck up the deep shot. He doesn't want to come off those actions, get downhill as often as he should. He doesn't want to pass out of those. I, I think I might've seen like one pass out of the yeah. pick and roll film <laughs> that I've watched from him. And then defensively, yeah, like it's, it's as like a lot of young players, it's a little bit of a mess. So like he has plenty that he's going to have to iron out, but the things that you can't teach the six, six size, the borderline top tier, top shelf athleticism, the explosiveness, the deep shooting ability and the comfort level in taking a lot of those shots. He is kind of like a, a, a two, two level scorer right now at his best. He's really going to have to learn how to master that third level, that mid range, like Jalen Green is going to have to yep. continue to get better at doing, but 
the tools are there. The tools and the foundation are there. It's going to be about how much work this guy puts in, how much he loves the game of basketball to pour in the amount of work that it's going to take for him to reach his ceiling and his ultimate potential. But similar to Jalen Green, if he does hit that ceiling, it is a scary proposition for the rest of the NBA. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to be able, you have to be comfortable making that bet on a player like Shane Sharp. You have to have the right resources dedicated to developing him in those areas and be comfortable with giving him those on-ball reps and letting him work through all the mistakes. Because there's going to be plenty of mistakes. If he's, yes, sir. Not, if he's not passing <laughs> the ball out of the pick and roll at the high school level, now you're going to ask him to make a jump, not even like on a level in between. You're going to ask him to jump into the NBA and try and make those same reads and make those decisions. There's going to be a lot of turnovers. Like you're not going to run an efficient NBA offense, giving him those on-ball reps. But if you – if you're okay with being patient, you're willing to live through the mistakes to hopefully come out on the other side with a really star level pick and roll score with some passing potential alongside of him. He can make at least the simple reads and the right reads like we've seen from Jalen Green this year. There's, that's quite the other side to potentially come out to. And I think that's why you would have him number four. And, and right now at this very moment, I can kind of agree with you and having him that high. Dude, I entertain it. I entertain it putting him number three, and it's you, not uh, because you, of, you put him. You put him above chat. We're throwing hands. I'll tell you well, that right now. We're gonna throw hands. I was gonna say the. Re it's not no, because I. It, it's not because I don't like Chet. It's just how, how scary Sharp could be if he's just. Absolute I understand. Free. Yeah, and and it's not like you can make that argument for all three of the guys that I have ahead of them. And Nathan. I want to ask you a draft philosophy question, if I may. And I don't think that it's one that we have had or if many people on the No Sailings team have had yet. And you can, an you can answer this to the, the length that you feel comfortable. How much of defense is productivity at prior levels of competition as opposed to the physical attributes and the just selling out on that side of the ball um, at the NBA level, because I feel like we've seen guys who were, you know, touted as being like top defensive talents and in, in prior classes come in and just be like, okay, like everybody's really good at that level if they try. And then how much have we seen guys come into the NBA who weren't like great defensive prospects, but because they were put in a smaller role and their physical dimensions like turned into like really good defenders. I think that that's an interesting conversation. Defense is a loaded Loaded conversation, man. Um, mm -hmm. I think how I would best look at it is there's there's a certain baseline that you have to hit from an athletic standpoint in terms of size, speed, quickness to ha have the foundation to be a good NBA defender at one point in your career, right? There's a certain baseline you have to hit. Once you get past that baseline, if you do have borderline elite to elite physical tools in certain areas, like you have elite length or you have that elite burst, that elite quickness, that elite lateral mobility, if you have elite footwork, like there, there are things that you can do to close the gap on what would be for a bad, going from a bad defender to a good defender athletically. There are just certain things you have that can help that along, but it's more so about, are you actually willing to sit down in a stance and defend your position? And then do you have the awareness as to what's going on around you and or the communication to be able to talk and coordinate with your teammates, make the right call-outs, and just to when those call-outs are made. So do you have the understanding and the communicative ability to actually recognize, read, and communicate what's going on around you 
And then are you willing to defend? I think those things are much more important to me than just having the physical tools to be able to defend at the NBA level. They're great. They can help you. They can close some of the gaps, but these awesome defensive players that we see time and time again, this is actually something that I wrote that that's in my piece that, that went up on those ceilings on Monday by the time you hear this podcast, you'll be able to read it. This is one of the things I talked about when it comes to defense. Look at the teams, Boston Celtics, Miami Heat, mm-hmm. Golden State Warriors. These, these teams are good at defense because they've had the same core pillars in place. It's basically the same personnel in place outside of making some changes around the margins. Yep. They're smart players. They're veteran players who communicate with one another. They trust one another and they're bought into playing defense at that level night in and night out. And that to me is why a lot of young players struggle on defense when they get into the NBA. It's not that they aren't smart enough to figure out what's going on. It's not that they aren't willing to, or they're not trying to defend. They just don't have that experience and that chemistry to build off of, to ultimately be better defenders than they are right now. Just as Tyler Rucker says, it just takes time. It it really, a lot of it, a lot of it just takes time. So really, I I know I went off on a little bit of a tangent, but to answer your question. I love that. That's what I wanted. To answer your question, though, I think it more so comes back to the other things than just the physical tools when it comes to the playing defense. And the reason I asked that is we talked about Jalen Green, and he was one of these guys that because of his, you know, just electricity that he plays with, like, there are people saying that this guy will be a great defender, and it still has still has the potential to think, do that. Like, think, he's of, just a think about that situation, though, with Jalen Green and the Houston Rockets. Yep. There, He's, he's not really coming in with a lot of veterans to work with on the defensive end. Like Jay Sean Tate is a really good NBA defender. Bless his heart. He's fairly young, like playing in the NBA, right? He's not Wood, an anchor. Yeah. Christian Woods really like the veteran around there. And like, you can, you can question his effort on. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there. To be honest. So like you look at the other pieces around him, like Shen Goon is a rookie. Garuba is a rookie. Christopher is a rookie. Kevin Porter Jr., very young player. So not only is there a lack of chemistry just between Eric these Gordon, guys. Eric Gordon, a good defender. Eric Gordon. John right. Wall's on the payroll. Eric Gordon's a good defender. Eric Gordon's kind of on a little bit of his last legs, yeah. to be honest. I think he's probably going to be – I would expect him to be gone from, from Houston fairly soon. But the when we talk about the core pillars of who this team's building around yeah. and the identity that this team wants to have offensively and the guys that are going to help that to happen, these are young guys who are inexperienced and they also just haven't been together that long. So yeah. how can you possibly expect these guys to be a good NBA defensive team when both of those classifications are, are not met on that end of the floor? Like they can, they can pile together points on any given night just based off of their natural talent and their ability. But when we talk about defense, those are the things that matter. Like the, the, the Houston Rockets, regardless of what they do, will probably not be a good team defensively for at least the next like three or four years in the NBA. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take that team putting the right veteran pieces around those young yep. core players, then getting more experience, getting those core players, getting more experience and learning how to communicate and play off of one another. And hopefully by like, Year four, year five, when Jalen Green's getting that contract extension to hopefully get there and then kick in, like hopefully we see the right team around him in place in Houston and they are playing defense up to the level that we think they can play. 
and maybe we can make that same case for Shaden Sharp, which is why I wanted to bring exactly. that conversation up. And Nathan, thank you for for entertaining me on that conversation because well, you, I, you I didn't just, give an answer. I mean, you you got to give your two cents. No, on I, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, no, that's 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 fine. No, I I I think that also we need to look at the way that these guys evaluate the game, like. I've heard Matt Penny say this, and if you look at the improvements on the defensive side of ball from one Nikola Jokic, you know, not I'm not going to sit here and say because he's got great stats that he's like any any elite defender, but look at the way that he's like that, the way that he's dissected the game every season, and there is a point to where you know the physical attributes do play into it, right, and your understanding of the game and conditioning is a big part of that as well, so. Yeah. When I'm looking at, you know, the improvements that Jokic has made, again, not calling him a world beater, but because of his understanding and feel for the game, the fact that he can see one side of the floor at an elite level, that helps him on the defensive side of the ball. And what we see with guys like Shade and Sharp, and the reason I brought this up is he sees at at the Dream City, you know, at Dream City, he saw the game relative to his peers at a great level, right? And I think that as his level of competition and his level of commitment gears up, that same that same level of attention to detail and things like that, um, improvements on you know on his physicality and understanding of the game, I think that the potential is there with the physical tools that he can like once the game slows down for him, he can apply that same level of effort depending on the role that's being asked of him, right? And the fact that you brought up teams like Boston, that's they're all like this. It's the same thing with the Toronto Raptors. They're all the same size. They're all switchable defenders who can, you know, are strong, quick, twitch, you know, and see the game the same way. So that's where the chemistry comes into it. So I, I, just, I, I think you read my piece, Matt. I think you read my yeah. piece before I even put it up on nosillingsnba.com. Because, <laughs> like, that's that's one of the things that I talked about with I, – I have Alperin Shengun, right, out of yeah. the top 10 rookie ranking. I have the number eight. Why do I have the number eight? His offensive talent and some of the flashes we've seen from all the things he can do offensively would suggest he should be closer to the top five conversation among this rookie class than, you know, in, in that lower end of the top 10 to possibly being out of the top 10. Well, I can't put him higher when he can't even stay on the fucking floor to play minutes in, in yeah, an NBA fouls game. Out. He had, out of the top 10 guys I ranked, he had the lowest minutes per game out of all of them. Well, why is that? It's not It's not only because he had other big bodies in Houston that were veterans who deservingly so played ahead of him. It was also because when he got opportunities to play more minutes, he couldn't play the minutes because he couldn't stop fouling people. So, and, and when you bring up how much factors in the other stuff or the physical tools, well, as I said, the physical tools, there's a certain baseline you have to hit. I think mm-hmm. by size standards, he, he, he fits the baseline, right? But he, he doesn't have that extra quickness, that extra lateral mobility, that extra length to help close the gap in between being a bad defender and a good defender. So he, he has to better understand what's going on around him. He needs to better position himself around the basket. He needs to stop fighting on all these pump fakes. He needs to stop putting himself in positions where he picks up all these fouls or else he's not going to close that gap. And to Jokic's credit, yeah, you still don't want him trotting around everywhere in space yeah. trying to defend all these shifty guards. But at the very least, when he's in one-on-one situations or helping protect the rim, he's figured out how to not foul and nearly as much. So to Jokic's credit, he's never going to be a world-beater defender, like you said, 
but he's at least figured out how to be a good enough defender to where he's no longer a detriment to his team, especially yeah, when you not factor in that his negative. rebound. Yeah, especially when you factor in his rebounding ability, his ability to clean clean the defensive glass. Like he's not a net negative anymore. He's if if he's just like at least average, which is hopefully where I would want Shingun to be one day, mm-hmm. then just given the offensive value that both of those bigs bring to the table, like it's fine. Like you, you'll, you'll find other ways to, to close the gaps. It's about what kind of value do they bring on both ends of the floor, not just one. So these are things that young players have to figure out, but that maybe that does bring up to your point. If you don't have those plus athletic tools in certain areas, you know, you don't have as much to work with. It's, it's much closer in the margins. It just feels like based on our conversation, our philosophy, Nathan, that it, it's going to seem counterintuitive the word that I'm about to say, but it seems like the the intersection of everything that has to be there for defense to work is fragile. It's like a house of cards. When you remove one of these things, like everything else just like dwindles down and you lose whatever else that you're great at, you lose whatever positive value that you're going to bring on that side of the ball where offensively you can kind of make up for certain areas if you're a good passer or a good rebound. You know, like you're good at other things that covers that up defensively you can't be like good at one thing and just like poor on the other and be a, a positive defender. Everything team, has team to... defense. Got to figure out how to play team defense. And that means being one with everybody else around you. Absolutely. So everyone knows the top three, Nathan, like everyone knows the top three. That's why we and... can have that conversation. Yeah. We, we've talked about the top three and we don't need to do like an hour on the top three. So no. And I mean, everyone's had different orders of these guys. I feel like, your mind's probably been made up for a long time with these top three. If they're still in your top three, I have Chet third, I have Paulo second, I have Jabari first. And everyone has dissected every ounce and aspect, like in Chet Holmgren's case, like every ounce of his ability. Um, Paulo's like every bit of his effort. And then Jabari's like every bit of his initial skill set that they're going to bring into the NBA. Like all three of these guys have like glaring deficiencies which what which is what makes this draft class so unique is like there's not that one guy there's not your Cade Cunningham right like your knight in shining armor who you can say Zeus tall he's athletic and he sees the game well like what there's else no Zion there's no Anthony Davis there's no there, there's there's no slam dunk number yeah. one overall pick but yeah that's what that's what makes it fun even even though I I would say there's a surefire number one pick but in, in reality, I may think that, but there's no case that I can really point to. And like, that's the superior case to, to anybody else's case that they can make for somebody else. So that's, that's what makes it so interesting. There's that debate at the top and it will be really, really intriguing to find out who gets the number one pick and where they go with it. Yeah. And like there's also the likelihood, Nathan, that the number four prospect that we talked about might could just be the in. best player in the draft. Not even just go number one, but the, Shane Sharp, there is a world where he is the best player in this draft class. Yeah. And you, we have to account for that. Like there are people who think Jay Nivey could end up being the uh, best yeah. player in, in this draft class. So it has gone from a three man race to I'm like maybe a four and a half man race. Like if I'm allowed to hedge my, my bets there, but it's, this draft, like, I'm so ready to be wrong about this draft, Nathan, and take my licks and apply whatever lessons learned that I get out of these to help me become a better evaluator. But that's my top 30, Nathan. I'll run it through real quick. I got Jake LaRavia at 30, then moving upward, Gabrielle Porchita, 
Ryan Rollins, Peyton Watson, Ishmael Kamagate, Marjan Beauchamp, Kennedy Chandler, Ushman Zhang, Dalen Terry, Nikola Jovich, Ty Ty Washington Jr., EJ Liddell, Patrick Baldwin Jr., Mark Williams, Oshai Baji, Jeremy Suhan, Tari Eason, Jaden Hardy, Keegan Murray, Jalen Duran, AJ Griffin, Malachi Branham, uh, Johnny Davis, Benny Matt, uh, Dyson Daniels, Jay Nivey, Shaden Sharp, Chet Holmgren, Paolo Boncaro, and number one overall pick, in my opinion, Jabari Smith Jr. Excellent board, Stephen. You've done tremendous work for this podcast and for No Ceilings since you joined the team. I'm incredibly thankful that you've been here for this draft cycle and this, this wild ride and very glad that you got to do that exercise to, to share your board and, and let it be your board on the draft deeper podcast, along with when I share my board, the fact that we have two to that we've been able to compare and contrast since before you joined the draft deeper team all the way yep. until now that you've been a part of it. It's, it's been a wild ride, but certainly an engaging one and an important one. As I've said on other shows, it's important for us to be able to come together and share our opinions and have differences and understand why we have those differences and have those conversations so that you and I can learn as well as our audience can, can keep learning as well. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your board over the course of these last few weeks here. And thank you especially out there for everyone even listening to this podcast yeah. and wanted to dive in with, with Steven's board and be more engaged with him. Definitely make sure you're checking out the physical copy of his board. When I post all of the links to this podcast on social media, give Steven shit, let him know where he's Please. going and you, you argue with this man, go right ahead. I give you full permission to, but yeah. I welcome it. He, he, he welcomes it. He wants you to share your thoughts with him. So make sure you're engaging with us on social media. You can find me on Twitter at draft deeper. You can find Steven on Twitter at Steven G hoops, right? Yes, sir. That's the one Steven with the pH, the letter G hoops. And make sure you're subscribed most importantly to the draft deeper podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, make sure you're also subscribed to the no Stones collective at no Stones NBA on Twitter, no Stones NBA.com. Stephen will have an absolute banger of a piece coming out next Sunday. Weekend Warrior for a written collective. In case you haven't read my piece yet on my final rookie ladder for the season, please go check that out on nosonsnba.com. Next week, I will have a sophomore ladder as well. That's right. We cover the second-year players as well, not just the first-year players. So make sure you're engaged for both of those pieces that I take a little bit of a break on the written side from, from the draft content, cover a little bit of the NBA. But Make sure you also stay tuned to the rest of the podcast we have coming this week. We have an exciting Houston Rockets podcast plan. Maxwell is going to come back on the show as well to give us his quote unquote guys of the 2022 draft cycle. Can't wait for that one. And we'll have plenty more in store as we are about a week away from the lottery, Stephen. Yes, sir. Can't wait. Now our mock drafts are going to be a little more meaningful, right? We'll actually Mm -hmm. have the order. So Stephen and I will be back with you next week to share our reactions to the lottery as well. But Until then, we thank you all for listening, and we hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Much love, everybody. 